Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I want to say a little bit about Jonathan Moreno's work and tell you how happy we are that he's here with us uh, for these uh, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Uh, I think that to preserve the values that are important to us in the context of radical international advances in weapon capacity, biological innovation, and progressively broader areas of human experimentation, we're going to need a lot of hard thinking by scientists, academics, policymakers, as well as the general public. And for us at the university, it'll only be by extensive and sympathetic collaboration among natural scientists, social scientists, and ethicists that we'll be able to respond sufficiently to the moral, political, and scientific challenges which we face today and will continue to face in the future. It's in this spirit that I'm delighted to welcome Jonathan Moreno for his three-day visit to our campus as the Stevenson's College Alumni Association Distinguished Visiting Professor. The support and planning for Jonathan's visit represents a unique and fruitful collaboration among quite a few units on our campus. I want to thank the numerous co-sponsors and participants who have joined Stevenson and the Alumni Association in supporting his visit the Departments of Philosophy, Molecular Cell and Developmental Biology, Biomolecular Engineering, and Chemistry, the California Institute for Quantitative Biosciences, the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, and the Center for Biomolecular Science and Engineering, as well as the Institute for Humanities Research and the Working Group in Science and Justice. So that's a mouthful, and it's wonderful that we're all able to collaborate, and we need more things like this where we work together and co-sponsor important speakers. Jonathan Moreno is professor of medical ethics at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. He actually wears three hats there. He's also the David and Lynn Silfen University professor there and also professor of the history and sociology of science. He's one of our country's most distinguished bioethicists and bioethical policy advisors. He served on a variety of important national commissions and also presidential advisory committees, including his service as a senior staff member of President Clinton's enormously effective advisory committee on human radiation experiments, and he talked about some of that yesterday. One, is, one of his other major contributions has been his co-chairmanship of the National Research Council's Committee on Guidelines for Stem Cell Research. These guidelines are used by stem cell oversight committees nationwide, including our own committee here at UCSC, and I can vouch for that because I'm on the committee and they were really wonderful and very, very helpful guidelines. And Jonathan spoke about stem cells yesterday morning. He's the author of 250 publications, and he's given invited testimony for both houses of Congress, and he's also a frequent guest on news and information programs. His recent work has been on ethical issues regarding brain research, and this is what he's going to talk with us today. The title of his talk is Mind Wars, Brain Research, and National Defense. Please join me in welcoming Jonathan Moreno. Thank you uh, very much. 
Provost Doctor, Professor Sukil, um, old friend of mine. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, and I want to thank uh, the Alumni Association, the Development Office, the colleges, God, uh, whoever else was uh, responsible for having me here, and to you guys for showing up, because it wouldn't be much of a party without you. Um, I do want to clear up something right away. Although I'm from the Northeast, I want to tell you that we are not the least bit jealous of the weather here. Uh, I know you, know you think we are, but it's just not true. Well, maybe a little bit. Uh, so I'm going to talk to you today about, um, about uh, some issues at the intersection of neuroscience, ethics, politics, uh, and uh, the, the history of science, and a whole bunch of other things. Um, some of you know that in the, my field, my main field, bioethics, the hot topic these days is what's called neuroethics, which is the ethics of brain research, and I just listed here some topics in brain research, each of which we could spend a semester on. Um, and if you invite me back, maybe I will. But um, I'm not going to talk about these things. Uh, I'm just going to wave my hand at them and give you a sense of what the bigger uh, picture is in neuroethics. Um, I have become interested over the years in... Get all this down yet? Some people are taking notes. Uh, I've been interested in the last few years in the, at the intersection of brain research, which is an exploding field, uh, and um, military and national intelligence implications of this work. So um, who wants to guess how many, just to give you an idea of how big this field of neuroscience has become. Some of you know this, some of you. Anybody here studying cognitive neuroscience or anything related to neuroscience or interested in brain research or interested in the brain? <laughs> Uh, good, okay, a few of you. So, um, so how many people do you think attend the meetings every year of the Society for Neuroscience? Sounds like a pretty obscure organization, right? The answer is 35,000. 35,000 people go to the meetings of the Society for Neuroscience. This is a huge area. The neuroscience meetings are now among the largest meetings in medicine and science in the world. I think the cardiology meetings are still a little bigger, but... Uh, neuroscience is big, and there's a lot of money in neuroscience. Um, neuroscience is not normally thought of as a field that could lend itself to military or national security applications, but when I tell the stories I will tell you in the next few minutes, you'll get it pretty fast. Um, one way to characterize what this is about is the concept of dual use. And The Institute of Medicine, the IOM, um, identifies uh, dual-use technologies as those that have civilian as, and military implications. And um, although I've done work, and I'll mention it a little more in a couple of minutes, I've done work on, on, radi on, on radiology, radiation, ionizing radiation and, and military and uh, national security implications. I've done work on chemical weapons and biological weapons. Um, we're not as accustomed to thinking of brain research as applicable to national security questions. So, you know, atomic physics, everybody gets that. It's the bomb, right? Uh, and the people who developed the bomb uh, in the late 30s and 1940s, almost as soon as they created it, they realized that what they had done raised tremendous ethical questions. Uh, people who are working in microbiology now are, are pretty familiar with talking about um, problems associated with using microbiology as a weapon, biological warfare. Um, what's, what was striking to me as I started thinking about this topic is that people in the brain sciences have not, for the most part, 
thought very much about the applications of their work to national security questions. So um, I actually concluded that, in a way, to talk about the brain and its applications to national security, to intelligence, national intelligence problems, is more sensitive than talking about atomic physics or microbiology and national security. Because when you know physicists push electrons around and microbiologists are messing around with bacteria, but people who work on the brain are working basically on us. In a certain sense, we are our brains. Uh, and so that's really sensitive. That's really personal. And I especially uh, found out this to be the case when I started talking to scientists, to brain researchers about this. Now, one problem that I had uh, is that um, if you start, often if you start raising these kinds of questions, even though you're well-intended, with scientists, they might be suspicious of you. So I like to say for audiences that include scientists, um, I am not a Luddite. I am not anti-science. I am not anti-neuroscience. I'm not against brain research. I am not even necessarily against using the knowledge we're getting about the brain for national security purposes. Um, but I do think we need to raise the question. So simply raising these questions and uh, encouraging people in brain research and in policy work to think about them uh, is not, it seems to me, to be anti-science or anti-neuroscience. Um, why is there so much resistance? And I'm going to say more about this. Why is there so much resistance or almost cultural resistance among scientists from talking about uh, the ethics of brain research? Um, especially when you're talking about national intelligence or military applications. Well, one reason is that we live in a society that is absolutely shot through with conspiracy theory. Um, and in particular, of course, uh, as Americans, um, a, a very important part of our tradition, actually I think an admirable part of our tradition, is that we're skeptical about government. Um, those of us whose ancestors had the choice about coming here uh, some of us are first-generation Americans, I am, uh, came here partly because, like my parents, they were trying to get away from government. They were trying to get away from the government that was involved in persecuting them or their, their families. So we have a very strong suspicion, and, and, and I think on the whole healthy suspicion of government in the U.S. Um, but sometimes it goes too far. Uh, so the, uh, the, the, the fellow who was driving me to Dulles Airport uh, on my way out here on Monday in Washington um, was berating me for believing that, um, there, that the World Trade Center really was destroyed by, uh, those, by, by those, uh, uh, those 19 guys on airplanes and not by President Bush. Uh, so, you know, I don't think I convinced him in our cab ride. Uh, but there's a, uh, there's a long, in fact, I bet if you go home uh, and talk to your families, there will be people in your families who are very skeptical uh, about what happened on 9-11. And don't believe we're getting the full story. Uh, there's still a lot of disagreement with the Warren Commission and the J.F. Kennedy assassination. So we have a strong sense of this. Sometimes this actually flows over into paranoia. Uh, and so um, I've shown this. I don't know how many of you recognize this image. It's actually from the, the first Venturian Candidate movie, not the uh, really crappy one that came out three, three years ago or so. Uh, I recommend the, you see the original, which came out in 1960. Three, on, uh, right around the same time as the Kennedy assassination, so it was pretty much buried. 
but um, not a bad movie. Uh, this is, uh, by the way, um, Frank Sinatra on the left. He's being brainwashed, uh, which I thought I think is kind of fair, you know, because he was brainwashing us, uh, your parents' generation, for all those years. Um, and this is, of course, Uncle Joe Stalin in the background. Um, the Manchurian candidate idea came out of the Korean War when uh, the Koreans, the North Koreans, and, the, and the, we used to call them Red Chinese, they're our friends now, so we, we don't call them that anymore. Uh, the, the, the communist Chinese, the um, mainland Chinese, uh, were very, very good at getting uh, American soldiers to go on the radio and say treasonous things. And this was really kind of a, a shock, and people were trying to figure out how they could be brainwashed, and that was the word that came up in those days. What was the brainwashing that was so uh, effective? And I'm going to come back to this brainwashing question in a minute. But that, this, this goes to why, uh, as this Nature, uh, Nature Journal uh, editorial raised this question, um, why have the neuroscientists, the neuroengineers they call them, uh, been relatively uninvolved in talking about these political questions, about their work, and that's one reason, because we do live in a paranoid culture, and I think people don't want to be associated with that kind of paranoia. They don't want to stoke that paranoia. So actually, I found, when I was writing Mind Wars, um, even though you know, I'm a college professor, I'm not a big radical guy, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pro-science on the whole, I found that the neuroscientists that I rubbed elbows with at lots of professional meetings many of whom were, had, were on CIA contracts, uh, other government contracts, um, when I said, look, I'm writing this book, would you, you know, I'd love to talk to you about the, your philosophical view about the work that you do uh, for the, you know, the CIA. I didn't want them to tell me any secrets. I didn't want us to be, you know, to go to jail. Uh, and they didn't want to talk for the record. And I will tell you that um, the, the chief academic officer of a great American research university said to me, a guy I know reasonably well, said to me when I told him this, he said, look, I can, I'll, get, I'll get some of my guys to talk to you. you know? So he got me in touch with a guy who was on a CIA contract. And, and this is a brilliant guy who's much smarter than, than I am, who when he started talking to me, he could barely get out an English sentence. He was so anxious. And he said, finally, he said, look, why don't I call why don't I call the guys at McLean, this is McLean, Virginia, CIA headquarters, and, you know, maybe they'll talk to you about this brain research stuff. And I said, okay, that's fine. I, I'm not trying to embarrass you, you know. A week later, he emailed me and said, sorry, they don't want to talk to you. Um, and the reason is not necessarily that they are, you know, reading our minds remotely, uh, as many people who call me uh, believe is happening. Um, the reason is that they just don't like to talk about stuff. Because why raise public anxiety about these things? So the, the work that I'm going to talk to you about um, comes out of, uh, partly out of a previous book called Undue Risk, which I talked about yesterday, which was about the history of doing human experiments for national security purposes. Then I, after 9-11, I published a, a, an anthology of writings uh, from other people called In the Wake of Terror about uh, bioweapons and, and, and medical ethics. And the, the most recent book, um, the really cool cover, uh, is called Mind Wars. Um, definitely meant to be creepy, right? Because you remember creepy things. So this is partly a personal story. I'm now going to go through a kind of a, uh, an argument in which I'm going to say, look, um, although the neuroscience that I'm going to talk about in a few minutes is new, the, uh, the government's interest in the brain is not new. 
And in a way, for me, this is a personal story. So this is Henry Murray. Uh, hardly anybody knows who Henry Murray is anymore. Actually, Henry Murray was one of my father's best friends. Uh, my father was a psychiatrist. And uh, Henry Murray um, was the director of the psychological clinic, the psychological laboratory at Harvard for many years. He was an MD who became interested in psychology. Um, he worked for the U.S. Army during the Second World War. During World War II, the U.S. Army had the idea that they could use some of the new social science that was being done to assign soldiers to duties in a more rational way. So I don't know how many realize this. You have probably taken personality tests. Um, but the first personality test came out of the Second World War. There were army. The development of those tests was sponsored by the Army. Henry Murray was a, a head of that. He was the first chief psychologist after the war of the OSS. Anybody know what the OSS was? The Office of Strategic Services, which became the CIA. Uh, and he published a very important book in the history of personality theory called um, Assessment of Men, which was basically a, uh, a summary of the work that he had done during the war for the Army. Now, um, Henry Murray wasn't the only one who was doing this kind of thing. Kurt Lewin, uh, whose real name, by the way, was Levine, but by, my father published his first article, his first paper in my father's uh, journal, and convinced him that, you know, it's better not to have a, a real Jewish name in America in the 40s. So he changed it to Lewin, which sounds more exotic somehow. Right? So um, uh, Kurt Lewin, another example, founded modern social psychology, was also an OSS advisor on psychological warfare. And a, a one historian has estimated that if you looked at places like Harvard, MIT, Stanford, Penn, the top research universities in the country, probably about a third of the, of the scientists at those universities were supported by, by national security agencies. That includes what used to be called the War Department, now the Defense Department. Sounds better, doesn't it? Defense Department sounds better than the War Department. Um, uh, and, and, and the Central Intelligence Agency and the National Security Agency. Um, this was a common element of the university. And I'd like to say to my, to my students, you know, um, imagine now the big research universities, including perhaps UC Santa Cruz, without any government money. Subtract all the buildings that would not be here if it hadn't been for government funding. That give, would give you an idea of the impact of the relationship between the academic world and the United States government, starting with the Second World War. Basically, if any of you have ever gone to Boston, to Cambridge, MIT would not be there. It'd be a couple little buildings. Uh, most of Harvard wouldn't be there. Much of Penn wouldn't be there. Much of Berkeley wouldn't be there. Right? And you know what, what came out of Berkeley, of course, was the early physics that led to uh, the atomic bomb. So um, this was a, a very close relationship that has evolved over the years, and now it's virtually inseparable, what government funding and the academy is joined at the hip. Um, those of you who believe in ESP, anybody believe in ESP here? Of course, I can read your mind, so I know many of you do. Uh, J.B. Ryan was the uh, Duke University for many years, famous. Uh, he, he, he actually created the term parapsychology. Uh, and extrasensory perception, um, uh, and the term psychological operations, or PSYOPs. He was CIA-supported from the early 60s on. Um, Ryan did experiments for the CIA in remote viewing. Anybody know what remote viewing is? Remote viewing is the idea that uh, you could, there are certain people with the ability, if you show them a place on the map, they can project themselves into that place, and they can see it, right, as though they were on the ground. Uh, so this was very handy if you want to send somebody to you know, a terrorist training site. Uh, this is great if you could just get them to remotely view it, even though they've never been there. 
and they can tell you all these details about it. That would be fabulous, right? Uh, you know, we spent a lot of money on this in the 60s and 70s, uh, probably also as a way to get the Soviet Union to spend a lot of money on it. And at this point, and I've interviewed people who were around in those days, um, nobody really knows whether we were spending money on it because we believed in it or, or because we were getting the other guys to spend money on it. Uh, so, um, you know, this is still a question. Um, now, uh, this, the CIA was interested in hallucinogens for a long time. I'm sure some of you are too. Um, you have this in common with the CIA. You'll be happy to know. Uh, Alan Dulles, I'm not asking you to raise your hands. Alan Dulles, uh, who was the, the first director of the CIA, um, old blue blood, Dulles was quite a character, um, he was so concerned about the reports that I told you about from uh, the Korean War, about this brainwashing of our soldiers. He wondered how the, uh, the, the Chinese and the Koreans were so good at brainwashing our guys, about getting them to say you know, treasonous things. So he actually went to a couple of professors of neurology at Cornell University in New York. And they were named Wolf and Hinkle. Wolf was, had been a president of the American Neurological Association. So these were not fly-by-night guys. These were serious guys. And he posed this question to them. How, how do they do this so well? Uh, it's kind of funny that the, the CIA regulars really believed that there was some Asiatic secret. You know, that they were really, these, these Asians were really good at brainwashing our guys, and we didn't maybe, God knows what it was. And they were very annoyed when Wolf and Hinkle published their report, which basically said, no, you know, they were just really good at it, you know. They were really good at what we'd call psychological pressure. So, for example, they figured out that you could turn somebody around very effectively, not if they were alone in a room, but if you put them with a lot of other people. It's very effective, you, and, and you use peer pressure. You know? So George Orwell actually wrote about this in 1984. It's a very similar idea. He was also very interested in hallucinogens, Dulles, not personally, professionally, um, some of you know that LSD was accidentally hit upon by a Swiss-German chemist in 1939, and um, there were various reports about it. So he actually, uh, Dulles actually, sponsored work uh, in, the, uh, in the CIA on LSD. Uh, and one of the people who did some of this work was a, a hero, actually, of people who study medical ethics, um, another Harvard professor, Henry Beecher. Anybody here ever hear of Henry Beecher? Well, he's a famous guy in medical ethics, so um, Beecher was a Harvard professor of anesthesiology and a uh, very distinguished anesthesiologist at Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, Beecher was a very, very interesting person. Um, uh, he was actually, Beecher's a good name if you're in Boston, right? Because remember Harriet Beecher Stowe, Henry Ward Beecher, Uncle Tom's Cabin, big tradition to Beecher's. Well, you might think that he was a, a Boston Brahmin. Uh, actually, um, Beecher's real name was Unangst. And he was born in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, where you say Missouri instead of Missouri. Uh, and um, when he went to Harvard, he decided that, you know, Henry Unangst, that's not a really hip name in Cambridge. So, um, but he had, a, he had a, a relative on his mother's side who was distantly related to the Beechers. So he changed his name. This is not well known in my field, by the way. Uh, he changed his name to Beecher. Uh, worked well for him, became an important guy. Um, and he was an anesthesiologist, so he, 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 did, he did experiments on pain, and he used LSD as a control, you know, because LSD, he could tell the onset. Um, he tried to see, he tried to compare the effects of LSD to various anesthetic agents. Uh, what is also not well known in, in bioethics, although 
it's been public since the, after his death in the 70s, um, he reported to the CIA on his LSD work. Um, and I actually have seen documents from a German documentary film company that shows that he actually, in the early 50s, gave the CIA all kinds of advice about, um, about the problems of LSD. Why was the CIA then interested in LSD? Because they were worried that it could be used as a truth serum against our guys. So what if an atomic scientist was, uh, was kidnapped at a meeting in somewhere in Europe by Soviet agents, and they gave him LSD? Uh, would he talk? Would it make, as they put it, an in, a man who is otherwise very discreet, indiscreet? So they were worried about what the other guys might do with hallucinogens, and they were also, of course, interested in what we might do with hallucinogens. There was one point at which um, CIA operatives were actually going, there was a story, there's a story, it's a true story, of a CIA operative, not to make you paranoid, in San Francisco in the mid-50s. He went to a bar. Um, there was a female singer that he quite, was quite uh, interested in, in this bar. Uh, he invited her to have a drink, and when she wasn't looking, he put a little acid in her drink. Um, this is a true story. He didn't see her for a few days, and this is actually in his field report. Um, when he saw her again, he said, where have you been? I, you know, she says, oh, man, I, you know, I guess I just had too much the other night. I am never going to drink again. Uh, so um, you know, this, is, this kind of weird stuff was going on. Um, the fellow who was in charge of this was Sidney Gottlieb. Uh, Sidney Gottlieb was, as I described yesterday in my talk on, um, on Undue Risk, my other book, Sidney Gottlieb was the, basically our version of Q in the James Bond stories. Um, Q was the scientist who came up with that cool stuff, including especially, of course, the car for James Bond in every movie except the most recent one, which I think is very unfortunate. Um, so um, he was especially interested in microbiology. He developed all kinds of uh, cool stuff to try to assassinate our enemies in the 50s. For example, they tried to get a, po a uh, poison cigar to Fidel Castro. Um, it's true. Um, which obviously failed. We're, you know, we're still waiting for him to die. It just takes forever. Um, uh, he also funded experiments on LSD. And this, this, one of the programs, there are several programs with hallucinogens. One of them was called MKUltra, which some of you might have heard about. There's a lot of stuff about MKUltra on the web. Um, so um, this, is, this is the work, the kind of work that Gottlieb did. Now, uh, I'm now going to take you to the present, because this is what I'm tell, telling you is basically the, making the case for a long history of, of, of our, our governments and other governments' interest in the brain. But we've gotten much more targeted now in what can be done with the brain, much more powerful. So let me give you an example. Anybody here ever take uh, ProVigil? You don't have to tell me, but probably some of you have. Uh, so uh, there are people who have sleep disorders, have used ProVigil, people with uh, narcolepsy. Um, one, of my, one of the last talks I gave before I left the University of Virginia last year I mentioned ProVigil, a woman who's a senior raised her hand and said, oh, yeah, I've used that stuff. I said, how'd you get it? She used it during exam periods. Uh, how'd you get it? My father has a sleep disorder. He said, you know, why don't you take some of this stuff? So um, ProVigil, the generic is modafinil, uh, has been found by the National Institutes of Health to keep people awake and alert for up to 60, 80 hours. Yeah, I know. Um, my medical students really want to get their hands on this stuff. Uh, it's not cheap. I, uh, purely as a matter of scientific interest, I asked my doctor to prescribe some for me. Um, cost me about $153. Insurance won't cover it for 20 tablets. 
Um, 200 to 300 milligrams is a pharmacologic dose. Um, this is now being used by the Air Force instead of speed uh, because pilots have to be up there for hours and hours. They have to be alert. They make mistakes on speed. One, I don't know. I'm sure, again, none of you have tried any amphetamines, but if you have, you probably know that you think you're a lot smarter than you really are. Uh, and um, that's a problem. So uh, modafinil is now... Um, being used. Modafinil was actually, uh, the patent for modafinil was bought about 10 years ago by a pharmaceutical company uh, outside of uh, Philadelphia for a million dollars. That is going to be a, <laughs> that's a great deal because uh, this is going to make a lot of money. Uh, and of course, um, if it's ever taken uh, into uh, over-the-counter use, um, that could really change our society. If, if people had the option and I wouldn't recommend this for long periods of time, people have the option of taking this stuff uh, for exam periods um, or as many people who travel across time zones now are taking it. My, uh, uh, one of my colleagues at the University of Virginia, a neuro neurologist, says his prescription for his patients who are traveling to, to China for a meeting uh, is um, uh, uh, Ambien when you get on the plane and Provigil when you get off the plane. So... Um, there are lots of other interesting things going on in the pharmacology world. So here's an interesting uh, possibility. Um, beta blockers, which are used to reduce the, uh, the dependence of the heart on oxygen, people used for people with heart disease. Um, it turns out that beta blockers also have some effect on, on levels of stress. So uh, soldiers who are coming back from Iraq or Afghanistan now, a lot of them, as you know, have post-traumatic stress disorder. We're much more sensitive to this than we were in the Vietnam era. Um, it's found that a combination of psychotherapy and beta blockers helps them deal with their anxiety, with their stress. The question has been raised, what if you gave a soldier some of this stuff before they went into combat? What seems to be happening with this, with this stuff is that it, it breaks the connection between uh, emotion and long-term memory. So we have this organ in our, in, our, uh, the, in our brains called the hippocampus. And one of the things the hippocampus does is it's like a buffer for short-term memory. It associates short-term memory with emotions and then deposits it elsewhere in the brain. This is a very simplistic. There are neuroscientists who would go crazy with that description, but that's basically what's going on, uh, it seems. So um, what beta blockers seem to do is they seem to reduce the association of emotion with a, with a memory. With me? So this is why, for example, I mean, uh, this is how memories embed themselves long-term in our brain. So almost everybody, I think, remembers their first kiss. We tend to remember events that have a lot of emotional content. So what if you could disrupt that connection? This, in on one hand, uh, you can see that this would be a great thing, right? Because you could prevent somebody in combat from having guilt and shame and um, all, the, all the horrible associations, a lifetime of associations with the things that they've seen in combat or done. On the other hand, it raises the interesting philosophical question whether you'd want to have soldiers that don't feel guilt and shame about what, uh, would you want veterans who don't have those feelings? Um, my intuitions on the WISP, by the way, ethically go both ways. We haven't had that public conversation yet. I was actually on a program at the NIH months, a few months ago with a guy named Bob Pittman from Harvard, 
who has done this work with modafinil, he actually doesn't think modafinil works that well for this purpose. But he agrees that someday a drug will work for this purpose quite well. And then we will have a very interesting debate about whether you could give this to somebody before they go into uh, a highly stressed situation. Um, another bit of neuropharmacology is, um, is uh, the idea that oxytocin could be artificially induced. So for example, um, when you're having a conversation with a friend, your brain is producing a lot of hormones, a lot of neurochemicals. One of them is oxytocin. Oxytocin seems to be associated with being social, having a nice conversation, being in a sociable relationship. Uh, interestingly, when women are giving birth, uh, they're often given a version of oxytocin called pitocin, which seems to, uh, which seems to encourage the birth process, somehow creating that desire to see that baby come out. Not well understood exactly what's going on there. So the question is, what if you could give uh, a detainee at a mythical place like Guantanamo something like oxytocin? So you wouldn't have to play good cop, bad cop. You wouldn't have to waterboard them. You wouldn't have to torture them. You know, They would be pumping out oxytocin. They'd be inclined to trust the next person who comes in the room. You wouldn't have to push them around. Um, you could get information that way. Uh, there are actually about six published studies that suggest that if you spray oxytocin into somebody's nasal passages, that it can cross the brain-blood barrier, which a lot of neuroscientists actually don't think is possible, but many think is. Well, uh, if you could do that, would that be all right? Would that be, is that better than, uh, you know, torturing somebody, waterboarding them? We're having this big debate right now about interrogation. We don't torture, the president says. So is this okay? Or is this changing the brain in too personal a way and society just is not ready for that? Is this too manipulative? Um, I'm not going to answer that question. I'm just going to raise the question. Here's a different kind of thing that, that is going on. And now we're going toward the area that's called non-lethal weapons. Um, this is a, I love the web. Uh, because uh, it's incredible, the stuff you can find on the web. Um, this is a, the first page of a two-page contract that um, was let, as you can see, if you can see the date, on 18 September 2001 by the Marine Corps Research University to Penn State University. Um, how many people here have heard of the Marine Corps Research University? Actually, there are people at Penn State who have never heard of the Marine Corps Research University. Um, so the title of this uh, contract is, as you can see, a technical assessment of the 81-millimeter non-lethal mortar munition, a non-lethal mortar weapon. So I called one of my friends who's a long-standing biological uh, weapons defense guy in the Army, and I said, all right, what, what's a non-lethal mortar? You know, I thought they... The idea of a mortar was to blow up and shrapnel and kill you. And he said, well, he said, I think, he thought for a couple of minutes, a couple, it seems like a couple of minutes, I think it was about five seconds. He said, well, I think it would be something that would put you to sleep. So that was interesting, I thought. So before I tell you the rest of that story, let me just um, show you the bottom half of the second page of this contract, um, which interestingly says, um, if you can see this, and this is, this is military speak, subject matter experts, SMEs, 
Penn State, as part of fulfilling this contract, is going to have SMEs, subject matter experts, who are familiar with the human effects testing of non-lethal mortar weapons. It doesn't say they're actually going to do human experiments. It says, we, you need to have people who are familiar with doing human experiments and the human effects testing of these things. So what are they talking about? What's in the non-lethal mortar weapon that's going to put you to sleep? Well, here's a picture. Uh, this is also on the web. Actually, this information comes from Project Sunshine, which is, uh, anybody know Project Sunshine? Project Sunshine, by the way, there's also a Sunshine Project, which is um, cheering up kids with HIV AIDS. Um, this is not that. This is Project Sunshine, which is a, a little initiative that's done by two guys and a dog in Austin, Texas. Basically, they keep track of whatever is public in biological and chemical weapons, and they put it on the web. So they're a fantastic resource. Um, send the money. They have no money. Um, this is what a non-lethal mortar test... So what is this green stuff? It's obviously aerosolized. So what is it? Well, I'm getting there. Um, anybody remember this incident in 2002? Um, you see various numbers about how many people died. I'm not sure there really is an accurate count. But basically what was going on in October 2002, there was a, uh, a musical being performed at a theater in Moscow. And um, some Chechen terrorists occupied the theater. There were 700 people in this theater. It was a huge theater. Uh, they occupied it for days. Um, finally, the, the Russian military got fed up, and they uh, actually pumped, I said a hole in the wall, really they pumped it through the air conditioning system, something called fentanyl. Um, actually, it's probably a version of fentanyl called carfentanyl. But in any case, um, this has been confirmed. Uh, it was just confirmed, actually, within the last week or so that it was carfentanyl. Um, and um, carfentanyl is an opioid. After a few minutes, it does put you to sleep. It's got to be in a confined space. There's got to be enough in the air and so forth. Now, um, there were emergency teams outside, dozens of ambulances waiting to take people out. There is a very simple antidote, very familiar to doctors, for uh, fentanyl. They, they use it frequently. But the, the doctors waiting outside didn't know what had been used to put these people to sleep. So um, at least 120-some-odd, maybe up to 167 people died because the doctors didn't know what they'd been exposed to, why they were asleep. They were actually literally, they were being brought out like cordwood, is what one witness said, out of the theater. So most of the children in the theater died because uh, their bodies weren't you know, big enough to, to deal with all of the opioid that they were, that they were getting. Um, the same day that the Moscow theater tragedy happened, the National Academy of Sciences um, published a report and this is not the best day for the National Academy of Sciences, uh, published a report in which they recommended, after months of study, that the U.S. government put more money into non-lethal weapons research, including the possibility of using fentanyl for crowd control situations. Now, um, appreciate that there can be very good uses of this stuff. I went to a meeting of, poli of uh, police officials a few months ago at the National Institute of Justice, and, the, and the, the senior police commander said, you know, it would be great if we had something like this for the following scenario. Um, a father and husband whose wife is trying to divorce him, he, he, gets the, he gets the wife and the kids in a room. He barricades the door. He's got a pistol. All right, I've got a sharpshooter across the street looking at him through the window. 
it may be that the only way I can stop him is to kill him in front of his kids. Right? Wouldn't it be terrific if we had something we'd just pump in the room and put them all to sleep? Unfortunately, there is no such thing. Fentanyl won't do that. It takes minutes to work. By then, he's pulled the trigger. Uh, but what if you had something that would work that well to defuse a hostage situation, whether it's you know, in Iraq or Afghanistan or downtown Santa Cruz? Um, so the, one of the agencies that's very involved in doing a lot of neuroscience, I'm going to tell you about this now, is DARPA. Uh, DARPA stands for the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. It is not a spy agency. It is a science agency. Um, they developed something called the Internet, which I think we all use. Um, it used to be called the ARPANET in the 60s. Uh, you know why the Internet was created? Anybody know why? For the military, right, because we were worried about the Russians dropping the big one. If, if, a, if all of our information was located in one computer, we didn't want that knocked out. So the idea was to create a network of computers so you would distribute information. That's how the Internet works. I still don't understand how the Internet works, but this is the limit of my understanding. Uh, if somebody understands the work, could explain it to me after the talk, I'd appreciate that. Um, so they, the ARPANET, uh, now the Internet, the stealth bomber, the computer mouse, they've done amazingly cool things. Um, not everything that DARPA does works. Their mission is to push current technology 30, 40 years in the future. It didn't do all that well in all cases. For example, during the Vietnam War, uh, they had an idea that you know, we were having trouble getting through the rice paddies, uh, so, and, and there was all this heavy cover over the jungles. So they had the idea of, create, of, of, of manufacturing a mechanical, I'm not kidding about this, a mechanical elephant, you know? Something like, an, like a Star Wars kind of thing, you know? It could clomp through... Yeah. We used Agent Orange instead. That took care of that problem. Um, so, and, and they, are, they have an interest right now in neuroscience. In fact, I, um, just to show you how a professor does research in a new area, um, and I'm, you're going to be very impressed with this, this is how I started to find out if I could figure out if I, could I write a book you know, that I would like to call Mind Wars. I had the title before I had the book, you know, because I thought the title was really cool. Now I have to have a book to put behind the title. Can I do this? So I, I did the very... Uh, sophisticated uh, research, which was I went to Google, <laughs> and I typed in DARPA and neuroscience. And I came up with thousands of pages. Because DARPA mostly does its work in public. 90% of what DARPA does is not classified, is not secret. Um, so they're doing some really interesting stuff. They're sponsoring a lot of work, mostly at universities. So here's one example, uh, brain imaging. A lot of some of you have seen these pictures. Um, there are definite, di different technologies around called functional MRI. Um, basically, it takes pictures of your brain while you're doing something or thinking about something or looking at something. Uh, you can also do PET scans. Um, these, are now, these images are now being correlated with behavior. Um, there are, there are uh, people belie who believe, for example, in the neuroscience world that they can tell what number you're thinking of after they do a little brain scanning on you, what they call a baseline, they can tell what number you're thinking of when you're thinking it. There's a guy in Utah who says, Utah, senior guy, who says he can tell whether you are straight or gay. There is a guy at NYU in a field called neuroeconomics who believes that in a bargaining situation, he can tell whether you're going to take somebody's offer or not. Okay? Now, I don't know if any of this is going to be confirmed, but we're moving pretty far down the road toward something that some people might regard as mind reading. 
Um, now, uh, so that's looking inside. Now, uh, there's also uh, various techniques that are being used to try to change what's going on inside. So one of them is called uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. Um, there is some evidence that you can actually change somebody's attitudes or perceptions using uh, magnetic stimulation. Um, and this is all, the list that I've given you is stuff that is in the literature. I'm not, I'm not going to say it's been well confirmed, but it's out there. there are these, these claims are being made for uh, TMS. Um, so this is, a, this is actually a term that DARPA uses in some of its contracts, the head web. What if you could uh, put all the, what if you could actually create a, a kind of a helmet or a cap that could uh, wirelessly, at a distance, read what's going on in somebody's brain using these various technologies. And these technologies are just going to get better. So you could follow somebody who's got Parkinson's disease, for example, around, or somebody with Alzheimer's disease, or, or somebody who's had stroke. Right? You could follow them. Back in the doctor's office, they're taking, they're getting this digitized information between visits to the doctor about how their brains are doing. This is w wonderful. Um, it could also be used to follow a soldier in a combat situation or a pilot to see how much stress they're getting. A pilot in a modern cockpit gets a tremendous amount of information, very information-rich environment. Maybe they're getting too much. Could you modulate it? Could you tell using these, these, uh, these measurement devices whether back at the base you could turn down some of the information they're getting? So this is an example of what I talked about at the beginning, dual use. Right? This has medical and security implications. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on in, in the field of lie detection. There are people who believe that we're going to be able to replace. Lie detectors are basically junk. They're not admissible in any court. Uh, their only purpose is to intimidate a witness. Uh, but there are some people who believe that there's new stuff coming down. For example, there's a wave that can be detected called the P300, which apparently, before we consciously recognize something, say I show you a picture of your parents, you emit this wave just before you're aware that you recognize the people in the picture. Apparently, it's spontaneous. It's not, it can't be controlled. So what if we think you, went, you, you were a, at a terrorist training site, and we show you a picture of the site? Right? You might say, oh, I, I, never, I don't where's that? I don't know that. But you're emitting the P300. Well, this is the kind of thing that people are interested in. What if, what if you have been able to convince yourself that you were never there? Maybe it doesn't always work. There are companies now that are trying to market things like this. Um, so is this mind reading? I, I'm not, I don't know. Uh, so the caption is, I, I don't hear anything, Joey. Are you sure you're thinking? Um, I'm not sure that our language is, 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 is adequate to capture what's going on here. Um, it's not only human beings we're interested in. Uh, there's the mind-machine interface program. Uh, so um, um, they're working with honeybees. Uh, there's uh, maybe what can we learn from the way that dogs smell things? They can smell things we can't. Um, fly eyes might, might help us understand better battlefield imagery, uh, better vision technology. Um, enhanced human performance. What if, what if we know that if you cool somebody's body temperature, they heal faster? So what if you took a warfighter in the field, gave them something that after they were injured and they had done self-surgery, which guys are learning how to do now, people are learning how to do surgery on themselves. Right? You'll learn that if you're in, in, uh, if you're in some special operations units. You do that surgery, you, hide, you take a pill, you hide under a bush for a week, you sleep. It reduces your body temperature. You heal a lot faster. 
What if we could do that? And then, of course, continuous performance, back to my modafinil provigil example. Um, this is all part of a program called augmented cognition. Um, there are AUG-COG uh, uh, conventions. The first AUG-COG convention was a couple of years ago in Las Vegas, which I think is a very ironic. <laughs> um, probably a good place you know, to have your cognition augmented before you go to the tables. Um, so, and here's another DARPA-sponsored project that I think has very interesting implications. So I don't know how many of you know about this project, but here's the setup. Uh, a monkey is facing a computer screen. Um, can't move his head. Uh, he's, there, there is a, a shot of juice that goes into the monkey's mouth every time the monkey does something that the experimenter wants the monkey to do, positive reinforcement. Monkey's got a joystick. Every time the monkey moves the joystick, um, the cursor on the computer screen moves, and the monkey gets a shot of juice for reinforcement. Now, the monkey's also got some electrodes in his brain. The monkey, every time the monkey thinks, I think I'm going to move this joystick, the monkey is wirelessly emitting some signals to a computer arm in the next room, a prosthetic arm. After a while, the monkey gets the idea that he doesn't have to move the joystick to get the juice. He just thinks, I think I'll move the joystick. Oh, look, that thing moved. I got juice. And, of course, wirelessly in the next room, through thoughts alone being transmitted wirelessly to this robot arm, the monkey's moving the arm. Okay? So this is now a point at which neuroscientists have figured out when we intend to do something, where those circuits are. Now, um, this is, would be great for somebody like my mother. My mother is a 51-year survivor of a cancer, a chondrosarcoma, in her shoulder. When she was 39 years old, she had her arm and shoulder removed at the clavicle. She's 90, 51 healthy years. It's, you know, happy ending. In those days, they could not give her a prosthesis that she could use. They would just have hung at her side. There wasn't enough left. Today, there are guys coming back from Iraq, as you probably know, who are getting these amazing prosthetic arms, right? You've probably seen them, and legs. And now, their DARPA-sponsored research is working on feedback mechanisms, so these people actually have sensation in their fingers. So they can, just, they can know when they're touching something, they can feel hot and cold, right? We're getting to the point where... <laughs> Right, the, the million-dollar woman, the bionic woman's back, right? So we're now getting to the point where that's a reality. Uh, some of these people are going to be able to run and throw and swim faster than they did before they had their injury. Uh, now, that's all fine. Dual use, as you know, dual use can go the other way too. So, you know, DARPA is not doing this just for amputees, although I'm glad they're doing it. DARP is also doing this because it raises interesting questions. What if you had a guy in a bunker in a video game virtual reality environment in Colorado, and that guy, man or woman, feels as though he or she is in the skin of a robot thousands of miles away in the desert? Maybe that robot is actually flying, right, taking pictures. Maybe that robot is doing reconnaissance on the ground. Maybe that, maybe that robot's firing a weapon. Maybe that robot, robot's doing mind clearing. What we were moving toward is a robot army, an army of machines that is controlled by individuals, 
thousands of miles away wirelessly through satellite technology. This is not a fantasy. This is, it sounds sci-fi. Uh, those of you in the room who are students, undergraduates at Santa Cruz, will see this. I gave this talk in, at Vanderbilt University last year, and I was a guy in the back of the room. I said, somebody asked me you know, when this was going to happen. I said, oh, you know, 20 years, 30 years. Young neuroscience postdoc came up to me afterwards and said, actually, Dr. Moreno, 10 years. The building you're in, where you gave your lecture just now, yeah, DARPA helped to build it. We're doing this. So this is, sounds like science fiction. It's actually a reality. Now, interesting political question. If you could send thousands and thousands of robots into the field in a war, would that lower the threshold for a country to go to war? You'd be saving a lot, you'd be reducing the risks of, for a lot of soldiers. Uh, so um, I leave you with that question as well. Here's a really cute one, the robo-rat. I'm getting to the end here. Uh, anybody see the stories of the robo-rat? I really enjoyed this because I used to teach in Brooklyn at a medical school in Brooklyn, and I used to walk. This was done in Brooklyn, DARPA-supported, a downstate medical school, part of the State University of New York. And uh, I used to walk down the halls past my science colleagues' labs, and I would think, geez, these are the people who actually bring rats to Brooklyn, you know, to Coles to Newcastle. Uh, and so this is a, actually this, this is what DARPA sponsored. They took a rat, very simple. Uh, they put three electrodes in his brain, uh, one side to control the left whiskers, one side that senses the right whiskers in the middle for a pleasure center. They had a graduate student on a laptop just like this. They put a battery pack on his back with a transmitter. Graduate student pushes, pushes the middle button. Rat moves forward. Middle and left button. Rat moves left. Middle and right. Rat turns right. You got a little rat that's a robot. It's pretty cool. It turned out to be very easy to train the rat to you know, walk through a maze, clamber up, as you can see, go up a little wall. They had him walking all over town. It was very easy. It sure beats those, uh, you know, those, those, uh, those cars that we used to control. You know? um, so um, Now, notice they chose a rat, because nobody gives a damn about rats. Right? You can do what you want to do to rats. Um, the question is, as you start moving up the food chain, how far could you go? There's actually one story, after I finish the book, there's, a, there's a, an article on the web by a Japanese reporter who had this kind of setup done to him, and he said he was like moving his arms, you know. Uh, so, you know, there's all kinds of things you can do here. Actually, this was not all that new. Um, in 1958, a very distinguished psychologist, named, a Mexican psychologist named Jose Delgado, some of you probably have Delgado's name in your intro psych books. This guy really believed in science. He's still alive, by the way. Uh, as far as I know. This guy really believed in science, okay, because he's the guy on the right in the bullring in Mexico City. And he put an electrode in the brain, fortunately he guessed right, of this bull. The bull charges at him. He pushes a button on a little machine that Delgado called his stemosiever. Bull stops in his tracks and sauntered away. I saw this, video, this, this film when I was a kid, and I go, wow, that's really uh, pretty amazing that you could do that. So it's not really that new an experiment. Um, so we're getting to the point where, you know, this is no longer speculation. I was sitting next to a, a woman at dinner last year, and I was telling her about some of this stuff, and she said, well, I'm already a cyborg. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I've got a, you know, I've got this thing that gives a kickstart to my heart, <laughs> right? So the question is, as we kind of move up into the nervous system, how far are we, can we go with this? There are people who are 
There are people who are trying to model a rat hippocampus on a chip. So you could actually maybe create more downloadable memory for yourself. This would totally transform test taking. Right? Don't bring your artificial hippocampus, please, you know, to the test. Okay? Um, we're actually moving in this direction. So the interesting question is, uh, you know, how far do we go with this? Um, and it is your generation that is going to have to figure this out. I just get to ask the question. And interestingly, um, there are political, uh, the, the, the politics of this um, don't go along with sort of left and right. So here's a website from, a, from an outfit in San Francisco called the Center for Genetics and Society. They're basically old Berkeley hippies. Um, they're friends of mine. Um, and the CGS, uh, they're, old, they're lefties, they're like the Greens, you know, in Europe. They're very worried about biotechnology, where it's taking us. They believe that as good liberals, uh, they believe that the poor are going to lose out. You and I are going to have our downloadable memory, uh, but the poor won't, you know? So we're going to kick their butts again, you know? People who are of privilege uh, who get to go to a beautiful campus like University of California, Santa Cruz, are going to do well, and we're going to be able to afford all these cool things, uh, and the poor won't. And neither will their children. Okay? This is what they're worried about. So they're not too happy with a lot of this stuff. On the right, there's a, uh, um, a journal that comes out of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington. These are basically neoconservatives and cultural conservatives called the New Atlantis. Uh, they're worried that these things are under, undermine human dignity, that all this talk, human enhancement is really leading us down a road to hell, you think the, the atomic bomb was bad? Just wait until biotechnology gets off. It's, it gets, gets really running. Uh, okay, so they're very worried about this from the right. So, um, you know, the, the long and the short of it is um, there are people on the left and the right. This guy happens to be one of the neocons, uh, or as one of my other neocon friends, one of my neocon friends calls it, uh, paleocons, a uh, very conservative guy who is, as you can see, he thinks this is this whole business of going into a post-human age that a lot of people are excited about is very bad, very scary. Um, so I actually suggested that it's time that our government gets into this in a serious way. I've suggested uh, in my, at the end of uh, Mind Wars um, that the, the government actually needs to create a, a board on, on neurosecurity. We've got boards on neurodefense, on neurobiology, and, and bioweapons, and chemical weapons, and and, um, and, and we really need to have a National Science Advisory Board for neurosecurity. We need to get ahead of these issues because they're coming fast, they're right over the horizon. Uh, people on the left and people on the right uh, are really upset about where this is taking us. Uh, we, need to, we need to get started on this. Um, so I'll leave you with this postscript. After I finished writing the book, uh, I, about four months ago, I was invited to serve on a, this is not secret, uh, on a Defense Intelligence Agency-sponsored committee, the National Research Council, part of the National Academy of Sciences, uh, that is asking the following question. And I'm, in fact, because I am doing this at Santa Cruz today, I'm not at a meeting in Irvine of this committee because I wanted to see you. You know. Uh, so, um, what's this committee about? This committee is asking the is being asked the question by the Pentagon. I'm not making this up. I can show it to you. They're being asked the question by the Pentagon, what is it about brain research that the bad guys might be learning in the next 20 years that we need to be aware that they're learning to protect ourselves? 
<laughs> uh, so this is, that's the charge of this committee. This report, part of it's going to be actually classified for no good reason, uh, in my opinion. Um, but most of it's going to be public. It's going to be published next spring. And it's the first time, I believe, that the Pentagon has ever asked for civilians who are not in the Pentagon to give advice on brain research and national defense. Um, so, you know, it's evidence, and I wish that this had happened before I finished the book, uh, but this shows you how, how fast things are moving and how people whose job it is to worry about keeping us safe are actually seriously worried about this brain research stuff right now. So with that, I'm going to um, hope that I've made you totally paranoid and, uh, and look forward to your comments and questions. Thanks. Don't be shy. I can read your minds anyway. Yeah. You know, you have no secrets here. There's a young man over here, but I think you need to go to the mic. So, sorry. Hello. Hello. There's plenty of room for other questions. Back in the 1980s, the U.S. military called on science fiction writers to give the same kind of advice that you're giving or should be giving in Irvine. Are True. there any science fiction writers on the panel that you're uh, part of? You know, that's a very interesting point. There, there, there aren't, um, but it, uh, <laughs> it's a shame, actually, now that you mention it, because right? these are people who are very smart, on the whole, and they know science, and they spend a lot of their time thinking about these things. I mean, Isaac Asimov, you know, is the classic case. Isaac Asimov had a PhD in biochemistry, uh, and he wrote all the robot books. Uh, and the, you know, the robot stuff, iRobot, anybody see iRobot? I'm sure most of you saw iRobot. That came out of an Isaac Asimov story of the 50s. Yeah, so you're right. I mean, it would be actually very useful to talk to some of those people. Uh, so I, I take your point. Um, maybe we will. <laughs> yeah. Just, just a curious question. I wanted to know if um, pro-vigil, if what were the side effects of that, considering that people are staying up for 60 hours? Yeah. So, uh, you're not thinking about that, are you? Uh, <laughs> no, so, I just... I was just curious. Yeah, I know. It's intellectual <laughs> curiosity. Good science student. Um, so they have not been able to find any, any side effects. It, it, the people who took it, now these are young people, young normal volunteers, right? They're not people who have a lot of problems, a lot of medical problems. The people who took it, uh, and there's, a, there's, by the way, more testimony on the web. There's a journalist who took it at 11 o'clock at night. He wrote, he wrote all night. Uh, he took some more at 11 a.m., got through the day, went, went to bed that night. It doesn't seem to interrupt your normal sleep-wake cycles. So, now, having said that, as you probably know, um, there, we don't test drugs in the United States or anywhere for their effects eight, you know, even a couple of years down the road. So long-term use is not recommended. God knows what it's going to do to you. But short-term use, if you're young and otherwise healthy, it doesn't seem to do damage. It seems to doesn't seem to interrupt your normal sleep break cycle. I'm not recommending it. I'm not a doctor. Uh, but, um, you know, that's what we can say at this point. My question illustrates your opening point and speaks to your conclusion. So as a skeptic and someone who's a conspiracy theory person, 
Um, I'm wondering if the phrasing of your defense question that frames this new National Academy of Science Committee reflects the legal restrictions to do uh, against offensive biochemical weapons research. Right. So um, let me make sure I get your question, though. So uh, are you pointing out that there's a fine line, in fact, there's really technically I mean, in the science world, there's no line between offensive knowledge and defensive knowledge, right? So if you, I mean, if you learn how to defend against something, you also learn how to use that stuff, right? And this is a, this is a conundrum. Uh, now, um, so, um, for example, um, the Pentagon has made anthrax, right? Uh, this goes to biological weapons. Why has the Pentagon made anthrax? Because they want to test how to defend against anthrax. Uh, now, the, the, there, are, there are treaties, now you just alluded to them, there are treaties that say that you cannot use or even do research on these things. We, we're a signatory to the International Chemical Weapons Convention. Uh, however, the treaty does not prohibit you from doing research on defense. And if that research on defense against, say, anthrax involves making anthrax, you can do that. What you cannot do, therefore, is stockpile large amounts of weaponized anthrax. Okay, that's, that's the way they draw the line. It's actually very similar to what's going on in the debate about Iran's nuclear capacity. Right? How much plutonium do you need to make, uh, to make, uh, to, to make energy you know, in a nuclear plant? Well, not as much as you would need to make bombs. <laughs> so it's a kind of... You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, not a, it's not a bright line, it's a judgment. But you point out, a, you know, you point out something very important. We, we do know a lot about the, how to defend against these things because we know how to use them offensively. No, there's no question about it. Um, I was wondering, um, when, when we start messing with these soldiers and giving them the neurotechnologies, how difficult do you think it'll be for them when they're not soldiers to integrate back into regular society? That is society? a great question. Interestingly, I've heard that question a couple of times, but only in the last few weeks. That is a really good question. Um, so one thing about soldiers, most of the people who are going to our volunteer army, and many of you may have families in the military, maybe yourselves have been in the military, they tend to be more socially conservative. They tend to be somewhat more willing to accede to authority. Uh, so, um, what would be the, and this, this very question, by the way, you should be proud of yourself, was asked of me by a psychiatrist who's worked in, the, in, the, in, uh, in military hospitals. And her concern is, her lifetime, she's a Navy psychiatrist, her concern is that giving people this stuff when they're an impressionable age, particularly when they have this pretty, you know, accepting value system, you guys are being taught to be skeptics. People in the military are generally not taught to be skeptics. They often become skeptics in their service, very common. Uh, so we don't know the answer to that question. That is a very interesting question. And the other interesting question is, how much as a soldier do you have to accept as a matter, as, a, as you know, part of your duty? Um, if I tell you I'm going to give you a brain implant today um, to, you know, make you a better soldier, uh, do you have to accept that? Well, the answer basically is yes, if it's not an experiment, right? If it's validated by science, and if we think it'll make you a better soldier, Uniform Code of Military Justice says you have to accept that. 
what long-term effects are? You know, the reality is, if you look at the history of medical interventions, medical experiments, or other things that soldiers have been exposed to, the Pentagon is not, it, its mission is what? What's the mission of the Pentagon? Is the Pentagon's mission to be concerned about the long-term health of people in the military? No. The Pentagon's mission, and this is the mission, if you don't like it, you can change it, you're the, you're the voter, their mission is to protect us. And if that means that um, there are things that are going to happen to soldiers down the road because uh, that happened incident to their service, maybe things like you know post-traumatic stress, you know that's uh, that's something for the Veterans Administration to worry about. You know that's something for their doctors to worry about. So uh, it is, I think, a very interesting point that soldiers are going to have to accept more of these kind of interventions in the future than they do now. Um, taking the anthrax vaccine is actually an example of that. Soldiers have, did not, for a, for a long time in the, in the 90s, have a, have a choice about whether to be vaccinated for anthrax or not. And some people believe that those anthrax vaccinations, I don't believe this, are implicated in, not in themselves anyway, are implicated in Gulf War illness. So, a very complicated problem. You want to know more about modafinil, or are we going to move on to another cool drug? Uh, moving on to another drug. Oh, okay. Um, the beta blockers, um, I was thinking about how um, it reduces the guilt in soldiers. Um, if you, have you done any studies? Has that shown that the soldiers tend to be maybe unusually cruel, maybe killing civilians? Would that be possible? I'll tell you how they've done this work, and they haven't done this with soldiers. They've done it with people who have experienced trauma in emergency rooms. Okay? So the rape victim who goes to the ER, for example, they've actually done this. This is how the studies were done. Um, and they've given them a beta, they've, they've done the, the ethically required informed consent, um, and they've given them a prescription of beta blockers, uh, and they brought them back over their period of weeks, and they've used psychological tests to see how vivid their memories of the experience were. Uh, now, so they haven't done it with soldiers, but it has been done with people who have gone through traumatic events, rape, a bad accident, witnessed a bad accident. Uh, and there is some evidence that their emotional connection to the event is somewhat reduced. But as I said, Dr. Pittman at Harvard, who's done a lot of this work, says it's not a lot. It's a slight response and it seems to work better if you're doing psychotherapy along with giving them the beta blocker. So it's a new area, and um, you know, how, how effective it would be under very extreme circumstances, what it would be like for combat soldiers, it's kind of speculative at this point. Sir. Um, I wanted to ask you kind of a personal question. Given the nature of your knowledge, uh, combined with the fears and the terrorism that exist today. Um, are you, do you take any steps to protect yourself from being kidnapped, uh, etc.? And, and, and first of all, preliminary, preliminary question is, would you be able to be frank in answering the question in the first yeah, place? Yeah, I'm not a, I don't, you know, I don't have a security clearance that, inv I do have a security clearance, but it doesn't involve these things, and yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know, I mean, uh, a couple of years ago, I, just to show you how low my level of paranoia is, it's probably unhealthy, how low it is. A couple of years ago, I went to, uh, to Karachi, Pakistan, to, uh, 
to uh, give some lectures, and all my friends were freaking out because they know I'm Jewish, and you know, this, the story about the Wall Street Journal reporter who's, you know, and so forth, and they said, my God, you're going to get beheaded, and at a wonderful time in Karachi, and uh, in fact, I was thinking that I was in more danger in the car ride to Dulles Airport, you know, <laughs> than I was in Karachi. So, um, no, I have a very, you know, I'm, I don't think I'm important enough for them to worry about. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, when I was in Karachi, I also didn't go out of my way, you know, to find any uh, al-Qaeda units or anything like that. So, um, you know, you have to be prudent. But no, I, I don't seem to worry, worry about that. I don't have bad dreams, you know. Maybe it's the, maybe it's the drugs I'm taking. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Good question, though. Thank you. You brought up uh, remote uh, implants. Remote. Yeah, and right now there's another thing called remote neural monitoring. Mm -hmm. So those yep. two technologies are coming together. So there's going to be a place where these implants that are causing cancer in dogs that we're approving to have put mm -hmm. in everyone, um, I think, what, 45 million people are supposedly targeted for the implants. Mm -hmm. Is there going to be a point where the implants, instead of transmitting, receive, and then you have remote neural monitoring connected with it, so then you kind of have a 24-hour surveillance going? Well, I actually don't endorse the statement you just made at 45 million people being targeted. I don't believe it. It's in the paper. That was the target. There's a, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in the paper. Okay. Uh, but in any case, uh, but the technology you're talking about, um, actually what I'm looking at is Google Brain. Because there is some evidence that we can actually re receive uh, information that is transmissible through the Internet. Uh, there's some experimental evidence for that. The, they haven't yet been able to figure out how to get it out. <laughs> But, you know, there, I have a colleague at, uh, at Penn named Paul Wolpe, who's a, a sociologist, neuroethicist, um, who gives talks about this. And um, he believes that in some time we're actually going to be nodes on the Internet, each of us. Now, does that mean that that could be used aggressively, you know, could, fill, uh, could fulfill in reality our biggest fears? It's not impossible. Um, I am actually somebody who doesn't believe these things are happening now, although we can have disagreements about this. But I believe we need to be aware that this stuff is moving uh, like a train, you know, very fast. Um, so I'm, wouldn't, I'm not going to rule anything out. Uh, one final question. Yeah. Um, there's a project called HARP up in Alaska. Have you ever heard of this? Yeah, but uh, remind me. It's a high-altitude uh, radio Projecto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, they're playing with uh, what they claim is the electromagnetic grid of the planet. And uh, one of the uh, theories out there is this can be used for, uh, neurally to broadcast. You know, there have been attempts to use electromagnetism to disrupt brain activity for 40 years, uh, also uh, microwaves. And um, although I have friends uh, who believe that this can be done, there's no evidence. I, I'm, not, I'm not persuaded that it's being done. And I'm not persuaded it could work. Um, a much more effective way of, of, of messing up your brain is to play rock music for 24 hours a day uh, at the highest possible decibel level, the way they did for Noriega in, when he was holed up in the Vatican Embassy in Panama. I don't, remember, uh, in, I don't know if you remember that. So, you know, there are a lot of ways of messing up somebody's brain that, aren't, that we don't have to use electromagnetism to do. But we can talk more about this. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned earlier that um, during the Korean War that the North Koreans and the Chinese were ahead of us in this. Um, what do you believe America's position is now with regard to neuroscience research and relativity to the other countries? Well, that's actually one of the questions that this committee I mentioned to you that I'm on is, a is asking. 
Uh, and um, uh, I don't, so I don't know the answer to that right now. You know, my, my guess, my relatively uneducated guess is we're way ahead of everybody else. Um, if, if there, are, there are some countries that seem to be very interested in neuroscience, Israel, Iran, uh, China, um, they, have, they have good scientists, all those countries, they have access to good, good machines. Um, so, you know, it's entirely possible that those are the places that are kind of our competitors, but on the whole, the U.S. is blowing everybody else away in neuroscience. Not even close. Okay, anybody, anybody else? I'm sorry, go ahead. I want to ask about the cyborgs thing. For the people who are like thousands of miles away killing people or doing reconnaissance, if that technology were to be like transported to, you know, civilians' use, like terrorists, uh, say you gave a child that helmet, made it think that it was a video game, they were just killing random people. Oh, no, we're doing family. that now, right? Um, how accountable would that child be, or how accountable would the individual who's wearing the helmet oh, be? Oh, I see what you mean, yeah. How accountable would they be? Not. <laughs> Not uh, no, no. I mean, I don't think they would be morally accountable, although there are moral philosophers here who can talk about that, uh, nor, nor, nor legally accountable. Um, but um, it is interesting that video game technology is the technology that's you know, going to be used, basically, to do some of this stuff. Uh, so um, um, you know, people your age and younger are going to be much more trainable uh, to do these things when the time comes. Yeah. Hi. Um, if the government starts using drugs like oxy, um, oxytocin or something uh, like that, yeah, yeah. Um, for interrogation, would there be any way for um, the people from other countries to like uh, protect themselves from that kind of interrogation method? Um, well, not if you, you know, had them confined long enough. Um, the interesting question is whether you could train people, and nobody knows the answer to this question, could you train people to somehow you know, resist uh, I, I don't know. I mean, there are neuroscientists in the room who might have some better view about that than I would. Um, I think the bigger concern is that as you ratchet up these things, you know, the armaments get more and more sophisticated. It, it creates another arms race. You know, so as soon as we figure something out, the other guys figure out how to counter it and vice versa. So I, I think that's the concern I, I have about, about these things. Um, but whether somebody... It's, it seems likely that people could evade these new uh, imaging for lie detection. Uh, that seems quite plausible, that you could somehow convince yourself or maybe auto-hypnotize yourself, yourself in such a way that you really think you hadn't been somewhere or didn't recognize somebody if they showed you a picture. Um, whether you can control in a, deliberate, in a very deliberate fashion um, the production of neurohormones, um, I think that's a question we don't know. Let me answer it to Okay, I enjoyed it, and uh, thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.